what do you think of when you think of prophecy? Particularly prophecy about days to come. I think there can be a sense among some Christians that Jesus and the gospel, well, well yes, they're the basics. But we, when we get into prophecy, then we're getting into the really exciting stuff. And so you have interpretations of the book of Revelation uh, that, that, uh, that see it describing Russian attack helicopters and the American military uh, and people getting barcodes stamped on them that they have to get scanned uh, and lots of other things that would have meant nothing to anybody in the whole of church history uh, before uh, the, the second half of the 20th century. But are those the kind of themes we should expect biblical prophecy to focus on? If the book of Revelation itself tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If if prophecy is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Well here in Genesis 49 we have a prophecy about days to come. Some of those days were in the near future, others in the distant future. And Jacob, at this point, bedridden and blind, he sees into the future. And he sees here what has been described as a roadmap of redemptive history. That is, uh, he sees a roadmap laid out for what is going to happen in the future, in the rest of history even. And what's that roadmap about? Well, it's about sovereignty, it's about sin, and it's about redemption. And that's really what biblical prophecy is all about. God is sovereign and his purposes will triumph. Sin is serious and won't be ignored. But redemption is glorious and Jesus will bring his people safely home. And particularly biblical prophecy has as its focus the reign of Jesus Christ. And Genesis 49 is a clear example of that. Against a backdrop of sin and failure, this roadmap of redemptive history is about the coming and reign of King Jesus. And if we were to look at the book of Revelation, we would find the same thing. So what are the key themes of of Jacob's final words as the the spirit of prophecy comes on him? Well, the themes here are that God is in control. Sin has consequences, but won't have the final word. And Jesus is the only hope. God is in control. Sin has consequences. And Jesus is the only hope. Uh, And we'll look at each of these in turn. So firstly, tonight, God is in control. God is in control. Probably as a general rule, the older that we get, the less we look to the future with optimism. When children are young, they they can't wait to reach the next birthday uh, and get the next stage uh, and be able to do the next thing, whether it's go go on the the next ride on on the fun fair or or go to to some club that you have to be a certain age to go to. Uh, And young adults are are keen to uh, finish school, start work, get their own house, get married, start a family. But as a general rule, 
as we get older, we tend to look at the future with less enthusiasm and more apprehension. Apprehension about what will happen to us or what will happen to our families, whether that's parents or children. Perhaps apprehensive concerning what will happen to the Church of Christ. But here, the elderly dying Jacob is given a vision of what will happen way into the distant future. And that in itself should be such a reassuring thing for us. The fact that Jacob sees the future planned out tells us that there is a plan. It tells us that the future isn't random, that it won't be left to the whim of evil men or of Satan but God is in control. It's important to understand that what Jacob is saying here isn't primarily about what will happen to his 12 sons in their lifetimes. Even verse 28 there, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. But Jacob is talking here about the future of the tribes that will come from these sons. He's mapping out the future of God's people. Or to be more accurate, God is revealing to Jacob the future that he already has mapped out for them. That future will include good times and it will include hard times. But it's all under the sovereign hand of God. And actually every part of what Jacob says here is described as blessing in verse 28. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with the blessing suitable to him. Now some of Jacob's statements here may sound more like curses rather than blessings. But the future of the church which these twelve sons represent is a future of blessing. And so even when the church of Christ goes through hard times, we need to remember that God is in control and his purpose is one of blessing. Take persecution, for example. Attacks on the church. and They are, in one sense, from the pit of hell. They're, they come from Satan. And yet they're also under God's sovereign control. Remember how a month or so ago we looked in the book of Acts, at Saul's animal-like persecution of the church. And we saw at the time how that was a fulfillment of verse 27 here, where Benjamin is described as a ravenous wolf. And both Saul in the Old Testament, King Saul, and Saul in the New Testament, they were ravenous wolves persecuting God's true people. And yet just as the tribe of Benjamin is blessed here, so the New Testament Saul who who came from the tribe of Benjamin, he experienced untold blessings when God intervened in his life and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. So the primary reference of these prophecies isn't to the individual sons, but to the tribes who will come from them. And at the centre of it all is Jacob's greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. Yet, like all biblical prophecy, this prophecy does apply in the first instance to the immediate situation. 
So it's not like this has no relevance to the individual sons who are gathered round at Jacob's bed. As we get older, one of the things that can cause us anxiety is what the future will look like for our children. But here Jacob can have confidence that his children's lives are mapped out too. Jacob could have the confidence that it would be true of their lives, just as it will be true of all of our lives, that as Psalm 139 puts it, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So as Jacob looks into the future, or or rather as God reveals the future to him, the first thing he sees is that God is in control. God is in control. Now that's not something that, that any of you are hearing for the first time tonight. But we can't be reminded of it too much, can we? As we watch the news as we look at the world around us whatever happens God is in control but does that matter that how we live doesn't matter if everything is mapped out are we just playing a predetermined role is God's sovereignty the same as fatalism do our choices not actually matter Well, as we'll see from our second point this evening, that couldn't be further from the truth. So this roadmap of the future tells us that God is in control, but it also tells us that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. This chapter of Genesis teaches very clearly both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Yes, God has the future mapped out, But because of their own personal sin, none of Jacob's oldest three sons are going to inherit the blessing of the firstborn. Look at the blessing on Reuben in verses 3 and 4. It seems to be heading towards a glorious climax. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and and preeminent in power. Uh, surely the next line is going to say that Reuben, this firstborn preeminent son, is going to be the leader of the tribes. Reuben himself was no doubt expecting that. But what comes next would have been devastating for him. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. What a shock for Reuben. I imagine he's like someone who has been invited to an awards night and turns up with the assumption that he is a shoe-in for one of the main awards. And when the time comes for the winner's name to be announced, it's like that person is standing to their feet, just waiting to, to walk forward and get the prize. But, but as, they're, as they're halfway to standing up, they, they realise to their shock and to their horror that someone else's name has been announced. So Reuben doesn't get what he's hoping for. Instead he gets that terrible label, unstable as water. What a tragically accurate label for many people. 
unstable as water. Someone who can't be relied on. Maybe one minute it looks like they're heading in the right direction, but the next minute they're totally AWOL. When it comes to the big decisions of life, they make foolish choices. And for Reuben, the particular sin which costs him the birthright was sleeping with his father's concubine. Committing adultery with Bilhah. We, we read about that back in chapter 35. And as we saw at the time, that probably wasn't first and foremost an act of lust. It, it was more likely an attempt to undermine his father and take his authority from him. To, to snatch Jacob's authority while Jacob was still alive. Just as Absalom would later sleep with David's concubines. It's more, more a political thing than a lust thing. But whatever the reason for it, it doesn't change the fact that this is sexual sin, a form of incest even. And the testimony of the Bible, which is, is just backed up by human experience, is that sexual sin is deadly. It ruins lives here on earth. And God's word is clear that unless repented of, it will bring eternal damnation. Marriage is meant to be an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. And sexual sin is an attack on that picture. It's to, to spray paint all over that picture that God has given us. And so Reuben, who, who in a sense would have got the blessing if he had just done nothing because he tried to, to force things and, and, and steal it before it was given to him, he, he loses it. And so with, with Reuben passing out, who is next in line for the blessing? Well, it would be Simeon, followed by Levi. It would pass down to the next oldest. But these brothers too have blown any hopes that they might have had. Back in chapter 34, after their sister Dinah had been raped... These two brothers had gone on a cold-blooded, murderous rampage. And now they're facing the consequences. And in fact, the language of curse is used here in this verse instead of blessing. Verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. Though interestingly, they themselves are not cursed. These two sons, they are not cursed. They still remain within God's blessing, but they won't inherit the birthright. And all three of these brothers are, are now facing consequences for sins that they thought they'd got away with. When Reuben went into his father's concubine, we read that Jacob heard of it, but he didn't say anything, as far as we're told. Jacob did rebuke Simeon and Levi at the time, which was probably all that, that he could do. But they, they shrugged off his words and justified their actions. But there is a day of judgment coming for all of us. A day when hidden sins will be revealed. A day when sins that we have been 
rebuked for but not repented of may come back to haunt us. That is a sobering truth. Sins, perhaps long forgotten, even by us if we're outside of Christ, will be brought back. But this is, at the same time, a reassuring truth. Reassuring if our trust is in Christ and if those sins have been dealt with at the cross. Because it reassures us that just because people seem to get away with things on earth, it doesn't mean they'll get away with them forever. A day of reckoning is coming. Outside of Christ, the fact that there's a day of reckoning coming, it isn't good news for anyone. And if we are believers tonight, well, it's not a reason for vindictiveness for us, but it is a reason not to despair. Sin has consequences you know, Putin may be charged with war crimes, but even so, do we imagine that he would ever face punishment for those things? Well, not on earth, but one day, if he doesn't repent. So sin has consequences, very clearly being taught here in these opening verses. Sin has consequences. And we could leave it there, and that would be true. But it's not the whole truth, is it? Because the testimony of God's word is that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And we see this particularly in the tribe of Levi. Look at the last two lines of verse 7. Speaking of both Simeon and Levi, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, in the context there, we, we read that purely as judgment. And for Simeon, this dividing and scattering was certainly one of judgment. We see from the books of Joshua and Chronicles how part of Simeon's inheritance was among the tribe of Judah and part of it was among Manasseh as well as Ephraim and Naphtali. As one commentator puts it, the tribe of Simeon really just disintegrated. If you wanted to go and look for for the tribe of Simeon, you you would only find bits of it scattered among the other tribes. So this prophecy came true for Simeon. It also came true for Levi, of course, but in a very different way, in a glorious way. The tribe of Levi was scattered among Israel. But that's because this tribe was chosen to be God's priests. And there's that lovely phrase repeated again and again in the Old Testament that the tribe of Levi were given no inheritance because the Lord was their inheritance. And you see it, for example, at the end, the very end of Joshua 13, if you want a reference. The Lord was their inheritance. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. The tribe of Levi is a powerful example that the sin of a father can be overcome by God's grace. That we're not doomed to repeat the mistakes of those who've gone before. That it is possible to break out of a pattern of generational sin. 
That even like Jonah in Nineveh, God's pronouncement of judgment is itself an invitation to repent before the judgment falls. If God just wanted to punish people, if God just wanted to punish people, he wouldn't give us judgment in his word. The very reason that he gives us judgment and sometimes chapters and chapters of judgment is so that we would turn. With the judgment is coming an opportunity to respond rightly to it. People say, I don't want to read about judgment, but actually there's always grace as well. There's always the opportunity for people to respond. And do, do we see as well the, the very different future for, for Levi than the one we might expect them to have based on this at the golden calf? Uh, that incident where, when Moses is up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and he comes down and finds that they've made a golden calf. It is a tragic tale in so many ways. But do you remember how when Moses comes down and he sees it and he, he asks a question, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And what do we read? We read that all the sons of Levi gathered around him. By God's grace, the pattern of sin, the cycle of sin was broken in Levi's family. And some of you either here tonight or watching on are first generation Christians. Your parents weren't believers. Your grandparents weren't believers, but you are. And that is a beautiful thing. That is an amazing thing. And let's pray that God would break the pattern and cycle of sin in the lives of many families in this community. So Jacob's prophecy tells us that God is in control. It tells us that sin has consequences, though that doesn't have to be how the story ends. Thirdly and finally, this prophecy tells us that Jesus' reign is glorious. Jesus' reign is glorious. So Reuben isn't going to be the leader of the 12 tribes. Neither is Simeon or Levi. So who is? Well, surely at this point, a blind man on a galloping horse could see that it's going to be Joseph. Well, surely... I mean, at this point, it wouldn't even really be prophecy to say that Joseph was going to be preeminent among his brothers, because he already was. It would just be stating the obvious. Joseph is one of the most powerful men in the world. Uh, as someone once put it, he, if you picture the scene here with Jacob and the 12 sons gathered around him, Joseph is the only man in the room who doesn't smell of livestock. And not only is he so far above them in, in human terms, but morally he, he's exemplary. He is one of the most spotless characters in all the Bible. So not just from a worldly point of view, from a practical point of view, but even, and especially from a spiritual point of view, surely it has to be Joseph. He will get the right of the firstborn. But no, it's not Joseph and that's not because there's some hidden sin brought up against Joseph. He, he gets a long and a wonderful write-up in verses 22 through 26. Blessing after blessing is poured out on him. But he's not the one. 
But instead, that honor, the blessing of the firstborn goes to Judah. And it's certainly not because Judah is a better person than Joseph. Judah married outside the covenant family. He used women. He slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. And yet Judah is the one God chooses. Clearly not for anything good in him. Though it should be said that the Judah we've seen in recent chapters is clearly a very different Judah. He is a changed man by God's grace. But Joseph is still the obvious choice. And yet God in his sovereignty, as he so often does, bypasses the obvious choice and chooses someone else. And surely Judah would have been humbled as he he looked at at Joseph and Joseph's splendor and glory and, and the character of Joseph and how Joseph had been faithful under trial for so long. Surely he'd look at Joseph and, and, and he couldn't be anything but humbled that God had chosen him instead. And should that not be how we look at unbelievers? People who in many ways are, are perhaps better people than we are and yet God has chosen us rather than them but for not salvation here but for the the right of the firstborn it goes to judah and so for for our time that's left tonight we we just want to look at what's prophesied about judah from verses 9 down to verse 13 or, or down to verse 12 because it points far beyond judah to the lord jesus After all, the Lord Jesus is the one who all prophecy is ultimately about. I quoted at the beginning that verse in Revelation 19 where it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And the New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner explains that verse as telling us that prophecy points to the centrality of Jesus and his majesty and greatness. What prophecy? It's not about Russian attack helicopters. It's about the centrality of Jesus and his majesty and his greatness. And that's certainly what we see in verses 9 to 13. The centrality, majesty and greatness of Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see in verse 8 is that Judah's brothers will praise him. Uh, And that is clearly speaking primarily of of someone far greater than Judah, someone who isn't even a mere human, but someone who is praised because he is God as well as man. And his hand would be on the neck of his enemies. Total victory. And is that not what the book of Revelation is about? To quote the titles of some helpful books on Revelation, it's about the triumph of the Lamb, it's about the fact that the Lamb wins. His hand in the neck of his enemies, Jesus Christ fully and finally conquering all his and our enemies. That in itself could be the title of of a book on Revelation. The book of Revelation, his hand on the neck of his enemies. 
Then the next line says, Your father's sons shall bow down before you. That had been the prophecy about Joseph, of course, that that his brothers would fall down before him, the the sun, the moon, the eleven stars bowing down to him. And that had been fulfilled in Joseph on an earthly level, as the brothers had come to Egypt not knowing who he was, looking to buy grain and falling down before him. But now that prophecy is transferred to Judah. And the prophecy is that the other tribes, God's people, will fall down in worship before him. (coughs) Then in verse 9, if you've ever heard the, the, the song lyric about the lion of Judah and you wonder where it comes from, well, well here it is, here and at Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is described as the lion, the most powerful of all the animals, the king of the beasts. And the verse ends with those words, Who dares rouse him? Who would mess with this king? What sense do we have of the majesty of Jesus Christ? In 1755, the American minister Samuel Davies was in London and great crowds were coming to hear him. King George II heard of him and invited him to come and preach in his chapel. Davies accepted the invitation and preached to the royal family and many of the nobility. But during the sermon, the king would quite often speak to those around him. They would give a little smile in response. As the Davies stopped preaching and he looked sternly in the direction of the king. Then he started preaching again. But the same thing happened again. And so Davies stopped again and he said, When the lion roars, all the beasts of the forest tremble. When King Jesus speaks, the kings of the earth should keep silence. Do we have a sense that this is the king into whose presence we come tonight? And then verse 10, we read that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. By the way, boys and girls, a scepter is a type of staff that a king held in his hand. Uh, So a scepter, it won't depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until, until what? Well, this is where things get a little bit tricky. Uh, Perhaps the, the hardest part of Genesis to interpret Uh, Clearly what we have here is a a prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus. But there are three main options of how we understand what the verse is saying. Which the the footnote in our our church Bibles will will explain. Uh, It will give you the different options at least. We can read it either as saying until Shiloh comes. Uh, That's a reading that is puzzled commentators from the very beginning as we don't know what the word Shiloh would be meant to mean here as a description of the Lord Jesus or we can read it as saying uh, 
the scepter will not depart until tribute comes to him. Uh, that's what the ESV goes for here. Uh, and it is the advantage that it, it accepts the Hebrew text as it is. Uh, and it does seem to provide a nice parallel with the last line. Uh, so the, the tribute coming to him would be another way of saying the obedience of the people's tribute. Obedience in parallel so those are two options or another option we could interpret it with many of the early versions of the bible uh, speaking of, of like early versions in other languages not not english versions uh, we could interpret it as saying the scepter will not depart until he comes to whom it belongs uh, that's also a traditional jewish understanding of the passage and in that case the verse would almost be picturing a scepter being passed down from one generation to another until the one to whom it belongs arrives on the scene. But the big picture here is that Judah will be the ruling tribe in Israel, that God's king on earth would be from the tribe of Judah until the true king who would come from Judah would be born and he is the one who the peoples would obey at the end of verse 10 not just the people singular who would be the people of Israel but the peoples the peoples of the earth and then verse 11 it talks about the abundance of Jesus reign binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine None of us have probably ever tied a, a donkey to a grapevine. It's not actually a thing that, that anyone would choose to do unless you had an unlimited amount of grapes because if you, if you tie your, your, your donkey to the vine and, and you, you leave him and come back, you're not going to find many grapes left. And so it's talking about the abundance of Jesus' kingdom, that, that there will be so much that you could tie a donkey to, to a vine and it wouldn't matter because you're not going to run out of grapes. And the talk about wine and the blood of grapes in the rest of the verse may be just another way of talking about abundance, wine being used like water perhaps. Though there may also be a reference here to the trampling down of his enemies, which is an image used in the book of Revelation of the wine press of God's wrath. And in fact, both meanings may be meant here. As one commentator puts it, to his own, this one will bring joy and fullness. To those who reject him, he brings terror. To his own, he brings joy and fullness. To those who reject him, he brings terror. Jesus' reign is glorious for his people. But his reign wouldn't be glorious for his people if his enemies went unpunished, if evil men still roamed the new heavens and the new earth. So, some of the details in this chapter are, are not clear, which is also true of other parts of biblical prophecy. Beware if people are, are completely certain about the tiniest little details. But the big picture is certainly clear. God is in control. Sin has consequences. And yet sin won't have the final word because there is a ruler coming from the tribe of Judah. For them coming the first time, for us coming back. His kingdom is already glorious 
and his full and final reign will be beyond our wildest dreams. Amen. Well, we'll sing in closing from Psalm number 78. Psalm number 78, which uh, takes up some of the themes of, of this chapter. Psalm 78a, singing 23 to the end on page 176. Psalm 78, verse 23 to the end. Shiloh, the place is mentioned in verse 23. It was an early site of the tabernacle, but that's probably not related to the Shiloh of Genesis 49. But what is definitely related is at the end of verse 25 into verse 26. And Joseph's tent he did refuse. Ephraim's tribe he did not choose. But Judah's tribe became his choice. The Mount of Zion he adored. And then in verse 27, uh, we, we sing of the shepherd, the one who would shepherd the people of Israel. And we read of Joseph here in verse 29 about the shepherd and the stone of Israel. So Psalm 78a, 23 to the end, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs>